Worship Choir, thank you all so much. And thank you all for uh, worshiping today. It's so good to be together in God's presence. If we haven't met, my name is Adam, and I'm one of the pastors here. It's one of the best parts of my life. I want to greet folks who are with us online this morning and uh, welcome you as well. Someone told me in between services that their daughter works at a restaurant, and when they have to work on Sunday mornings, the restaurant will actually let her stream our services right there at work still. So just never know who's out there in internet land. So we're glad uh, you're joining in too. I wonder, what did you come, now I'm going to ask you a couple of rhetorical questions here. What did you come in worried about? What worries did you bring in with you today? My guess is we've got a whole spectrum of them amongst us. Everything from the somewhat trivial, maybe even a little silly, uh, to very major things, life or death. A lot of our worries could be centered around some type of strained relationship. Maybe that's with a family or a friend or a neighbor. Maybe you have financial concerns or something related to employment. Maybe your worry is rooted in some type of health issue for yourself or a loved one. These are all intensely important and individual worries. Uh, maybe others of us have worries on a, on a larger scale, on a broader level, the, the wars in the Ukraine and in Israel or Gaza. Inflation, uh, gun violence or other violent crimes. Climate change. We could make a, a big list, and I don't want to make light of any of these things, but here at the beginning, we could make like the saddest bingo card ever, right? So we know that we bring a lot in here with us. And when we return to whatever worries await us when we leave this place, it's important to be mindful of those things. And a lot of times, uh, our worries are very real and we can become very anxious about them. And I want to be specific about how we're defining anxiety. I mean specifically, as pastor and author Jack Shatama has said, an inability to deal with uncertainty and the desire to control outcomes that is driven by fear of failure. Worry and anxiety are related. Either, you can even think of them as synonymous because they are both centered around control, uncertainty, or failure. Whatever list you made in your mind earlier, just a minute ago, my guess is that a lot of those things would come down to uncertainty, control, or failure. Seth Godin is an entrepreneur and author. He defined anxiety pretty simply but very powerfully. He said anxiety is experiencing failure in advance. I think about that a lot. And I think that's pretty easy to do, isn't it? Jesus said, do not worry. I find that harder to do. Right? Don't we all? And so the gap between these two things, how do we address that? That's what we want to do in these next three weeks with our series called The Anxiety Antidote. How do we worry less? How do we have less anxiety and more peace? Peace is one of the marks of following Jesus. It's listed in the Bible as one of the traits that we gain and we grow in as we mature in our faith. And that's what this series is about. 
the anxiety antidote. So let me say up front, I'm not ridiculous enough to, to think that, that I have the solution to anxiety. It's certainly something to manage rather than totally eliminate. I also wanna differentiate kind of what we're talking about from having anxiety in a clinical sense. Uh, so I wanna be very upfront with my, uh, uh, hopefully this is comforting to know, I try to stay in my lane. I'm a pastor, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a counselor, I'm not a psychologist. And so if you experience the medical condition of anxiety, those conversations are best had with those professionals who are so much better trained and equipped to give you the care that you need. They have the expertise. Anxiety as a medical diagnosis can be a very scary thing. And the church has the potential to cause a lot of harm if, if we say to people who are dealing with chronic anxiety, you just need to try harder. That's not what we're trying to say in these three weeks. So let me affirm that for some of us here, many of us here, God will use a doctor or a therapist or medicine to heal you and care for you. What we're talking about today, what we're talking about in this series is not an indictment of any of those things. What we wanna do in this series is equip ourselves with good theology to deal with anxiety that's within an appropriate threshold, within a range. So each week we're gonna name a source of anxiety. This week it's over-functioning. We're gonna unpack what that means. And our anxiety antidote for this week is to differentiate the few needs from the many distractions. The other day I was on the phone with my sister Kelly. She lives in Lee Summit with her family and we were having the conversation, as I'm guessing many of us will in these coming weeks, about when we're gonna get together for different holiday functions as a family. And it was like a tennis match back and forth, volleying between my kids' schedules and her kids' schedules and her work schedule as a family and our work schedule as a family and her in-law's Christmas traditions and my in-law's traditions. I mean, just back and forth we went. When we were gonna be in or out of town, and I could just feel the anxiety rising. And it was a good conversation. And so it wasn't tense, but she, she and I were both just, we, we couldn't even decide on things because there was so much yet to be determined in our schedules. I guess I'm, I'm guessing I'm not the only one who's had a conversation like that recently or will, right? And so at the bottom of all that, the reason my sister and I were anxious is because some of this stuff feels like out of our control. But another piece of it is, we don't want to fail at providing our children with a meaningful Christmas experience as a family. That's at the bottom of it. Especially this time of year, activities and expectations ramp up. Asking almost anybody how they're doing and they'll say, whoo, busy. You heard that? Have you said that? Ooh, busy. So here's an uncomfortable rhetorical question for us. How much worry do we experience because we are the ones generating it? Just like us, we're going to meet someone in our scripture today who means well, but is strung out. We're going to be reading from the Gospel of Luke. And that's a word, gospel, that simply means good news. The New Testament, the second half of the Bible, opens with four of these Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
And these are like biographies of Jesus, and they contain the good news, the gospel of his life and his teachings and his death and resurrection. Today we're going to read about two sisters, Martha and Mary, and we're going to see some tenderness and some tension between the two of them. Mary is sister of Martha, and it's in her home, Martha's home, that she's going to welcome Jesus as a guest. No pressure, right? Anybody else feel like when company's coming over, you're vacuuming until like 45 seconds before they show up at your door, and then you open the door and you're trying to not look out of breath? Come on in. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm not sweating. It's fine. Imagine Jesus showing up to your house. All right. So this is, this is a lot riding on this for Martha. And her society is going to put a lot of pressure on her. One, as a host. And two, as a woman. So just like hosting the holidays, activity and expectations and also anxiety are running high. The same is true in Luke 10. We're going to pick up in verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. Jesus and his disciples were mobile ministers. They traveled around ancient Israel. They'd go from town to town, uh, preaching and teaching, and then they would take up residence in a generous host's home. Martha was the host, and we learn more about her as we read on. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. So the fact that Martha has her own home tells us a couple things. She had some means and was either not married or was a widow. We don't know if Martha lived with her sister Mary, but we can see that Mary takes a very different approach to welcoming Jesus than Martha did. Mary's found sitting at Jesus' feet. Maybe that was in the dining area or outside. Two social expectations are being broken here. They're being violated One, that Mary is with the male guests instead of preparing dinner. Now, as crude as that seems to us now, that's how it was in the first century. Add to that the fact, uh, the second social violation is that not only was Mary among the men, but that Jesus was treating her as an equal. She took the posture of a disciple, of a learner, sitting at Jesus' feet. This was unheard of for a woman. In the first century, the expectation would have been for Mary to be taking care of all the hosting things. And so we don't know how Martha learns about her sister's current activities. Maybe she overheard her voice, or maybe as she was speeding past a doorway, she caught a glimpse of her, we don't know. But what we do know is that once Martha understands that Mary's where she is with Jesus, Martha's not happy about it. We read this in verse 40. Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. So she came to Jesus and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Now, I want to leave the scripture up for a second. Does anybody else, is anyone like me, and when you send an email, you overuse exclamation marks to try and make yourself look friendly? Okay, we got a couple of us here. That's right, that's right. You know what doesn't use a lot of exclamation marks is the Bible. Those aren't just strewn everywhere. So when we see two of them here, we know that Martha's really digging in. She's calling out her sister, and in a way, kind of calling out Jesus. But Martha's in a tough, tough spot. She not only has a cultural expectation to adhere to, but she's also got real pragmatic needs going on. Being the host, it would have been her responsibility to prepare dinner, not just for Jesus, but for everybody traveling with Jesus. We, knew where, we know wherever Jesus went, a big crowd went also. Honor and duty and hospitality, 
These were keystone cultural values in the first century. So these are very real concerns. Like somebody's got to plug in the crockpot, right? We shouldn't blame Martha for doing what was expected of her. We should empathize with Martha. She's doing her best to live up to the expectations of her and she's trying to show her devotion to Jesus through serving Jesus. Nobody minded that Mary owned the house. Nobody minded all the prep work she did before Jesus showed up. Nobody minded that Martha was also very generous in supporting Jesus' ministry, not just in this case, but financially. Nobody minded that, so we shouldn't, we shouldn't blame Martha for the role that she's trying to play, because that was what was assigned to her. Now, it said that, that Martha was distracted by many preparations. In the original language in the Greek, the word distraction is perispato, and that has the sense of pulling someone away. She's being pulled. If you'll allow me kind of a crude example, a bit, bit of a morbid example, it's been said that this is what the French called the method of torture or execution, where they would take someone and each of their four limbs was chained to a different horse, and then they would send the horses in different directions. They called that distraction. Quite an image, isn't it? Mary's being pulled in two directions. Acquiescing to the cultural expectations versus giving her full attention to Jesus. Martha appears to be insulted by her sister shirking her duties. And she gets so worked up, her anxiety is so high that she chastises not only her sister, but kind of yells at Jesus in front of everybody else. And Jesus responds graciously, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So I think we've tried pretty hard not to give Martha a bad rap here. She was showing her loyalty to Jesus through serving Jesus. But it is possible that in the distractions, in all the directions she's being pulled, all the preparations to be made that we read about, she's missed what's most important. She may have several good reasons to be worried and upset about many things that come along with hosting. But she has arrived at the point where she's doing too much instead of focusing on the most important thing. That's loving Jesus, not through acts of service, but through attention and presence. And so we have all this intensity, all this worry, and from what source? Where's all this coming from with Martha? Are the complaints from the guests piling up? Has she embarrassed herself as a host? Luke 10 gives us no indication of that. And if Jesus' guidance is any clue, she seems to be generating all this worry and anxiety for nothing. It's self-imposed. Now, friends, my guess is we have a lot of doers in our congregation. It's a good thing to take social convention seriously in terms of being a host. Uh, we have a lot of folks who, who thrive by checking off a list. We have a lot of folks who relax by getting things done. But friends, at what point is our worry and anxiety self-inflicted? This is called over-functioning. When you're exceeding your responsibilities, especially on behalf of others. 
This is a massive source of anxiety. Now, if you struggle with this, if you struggle with overfunctioning, I'm not trying to pick on you. I'm trying to liberate you. I'm not here to beat you up. I'm here to tell you to take it easy on yourself. We may not have hosted Jesus in our home, but I think some of the dynamics in this story are some of the same ones we experience. When I first learned about this model called the Carpman Drama Triangle, it had a massive impact on my life. This is a model for understanding the different dynamics in relationships. And in certain scenarios, we can play different roles within them. So the Carpman Drama Triangle consists of three roles, the victim, the rescuer, and the persecutor. Let's start with the victim. Not an actual victim, but someone feeling like or or acting like a victim. In this case, Martha is the self-appointed victim. Jesus, don't you care that I'm doing all this and my sister is doing zero? Tell her to help me. She's playing the victim. And she wants Jesus to play the rescuer, the person to tell her it's not her fault, the person to make it all okay. And in this case, that looks like making her sister pitch in. You could also consider Martha playing the persecutor because she's also trying to assign blame. She's angry. She's angry at her sister and she's trying to get Jesus to chastise Mary. That's the thing about the Carpman drama triangle. Roles can be fluid and we can play more than one at a time in the same scenario. Picture this. Let's say you're a manager at work and you have an employee that is struggling and they come to tell you all the reasons their poor performance isn't their fault. There's these different excuses and none of it has to do with them. It's all these external things. Thus, making themselves the victim. You then, as a manager, want to be helpful. It's nice to be needed. And so you offer some solutions. You offer some help and some ways to solve this. And so now you have become the rescuer. You're going to step in and do what they should do. You're going to rescue them. And over time, this creeping realization comes upon you that what is happening is this employee has made their problem your problem. And then you get mad and you call a meeting to hold them to account, to express your frustration, and now you've turned into the persecutor. And meanwhile, you've conditioned them this whole time just to look to you to be rescued, which reinforces their victimhood. Do you see how this thing bounces around? Oh, and then you're so angry, you call one of your, you don't call this employee, you call one of your other colleagues, a fellow manager, to complain. And you say, can you believe what this jabroni's doing? And now guess what you are? The victim. And on and on the, the Cartman drama triangle goes. Many times it begins with overfunctioning, doing for others what is theirs to do. My buddy was a youth pastor on a trip, and they went and stopped at McDonald's uh, one time. And you have adults that are youth leaders on the trip, and one of these particular youth leaders was also a parent. And my friend actually observed the parent ordering their kids' food for them at McDonald's. And, and he said, hey, what's going on? And they said, oh, he doesn't order for himself. He wouldn't know what to do. How old do you want to think that kid was? Four, five. Oh, I get it. You want the four piece or the six piece? I got you, buddy. And they were a junior in high school. He couldn't order for himself. He doesn't know what to do. 
over-functioning. And if you knew my buddy, you would be shocked because he actually said to them, I'll bet if he gets hungry enough, he'll figure it out. <laughs> over-functioning. How much of our anxiety is because of this unsolicited rescuing that we do? How much anxiety is generated by our doing for others what is theirs to do? Again, I think so many of us only want to be helpful, and that is a good thing. But there are times when we overfunction because of ego, or in biblical language, the sin of pride. Because we like to be needed, or we think that we're the only ones who can do it right. That's the dark side of all this. When we overfunction, we're essentially communicating to that other person, you can't do this at all. Or you try and it'll be cute, but you can't do it as well as I can. That's implied in the overfunctioning, in the doing for someone else what they can do themselves. Now, friends, I'm not suggesting you never help. I'm just suggesting you let them ask. Big difference. There are other times where people will ask you to exceed your responsibilities. They want you to overfunction for them. And it can be hard to determine what is yours to do and what is theirs. And I know I'm touching on a nerve because this is the fourth time I've done this now. And it's no coincidence, we do all this stuff in early November before we all see our families over the next eight weeks. I had a situation years ago where it was hard to determine what was mine to do and what was this, this other party's. Years ago, this was at a, a different church, I had a member who had a stroke and they were facing a long road of rehab and future procedures. And this person was struggling to decide if they wanted to go on this long road of recovery. Their spouse called me as their pastor and they wanted me to essentially convince their spouse to choose the rehab, essentially to convince them to want to stay alive. Can you just, I don't think this is unique to being a pastor, by the way. Have you ever been presented with some advice or someone wanting you to, to step into a situation you can just feel the angst growing? Now, I'm a fan of life. I want my church members to live. And so I hope you can see how tempting it was for me to step into the role of being a rescuer. But I got some wise counsel from a friend because I, I, I didn't know how to handle this. And I think about this all the time. A colleague of mine said, you know, I don't think it's your role to convince them to live or not. I believe it's your role to help them be at peace with whatever they decide. Man. One anxiety antidote is differentiation. This is sorting out where we end and where another person begins. Our emotions, our actions, our responsibilities, and drawing a line between ours and their emotions, actions, and responsibilities. In the case of my friend who had a stroke, I had to differentiate my emotions as their pastor and their emotions as the one who was suffering from this condition. I needed to separate what was appropriate for me to do and what was appropriate for them to do. I had to differentiate. I had to draw the difference between my emotions and actions in light of those, understanding what was my responsibility and what was their responsibility and theirs alone. 
And at the heart of the anxiety around this whole situation was me selfishly worrying about a failure to meet their expectations as their pastor. Now again, I think this can all apply without being a pastor. I'm just trying to tell you how this has played out in my life. I was experiencing failure in advance when really it wasn't my responsibility or my decision to make. And so differentiating is sorting out whose is whose and what is what. And friends, that differentiation was key to me because what it freed me up to do was respond to these folks, not out of anxiety, not out of self-preservation, but out of love. And so it's helpful to remember that people already have a savior and his name ain't yours or mine. People already have a savior. We don't have to do that. That's a freeing concept. People have a savior and his name is Jesus. Martha was being pulled in competing directions, but Jesus said only one thing is needed. So I think when it comes to managing our anxiety, what we have to sort out is what's a distraction and what's really the true need. Of the many things that we could worry about, what are the few that are really worth acting on? So this week, to counter over-functioning, our anxiety antidote is to differentiate the few needs from the many distractions. During this season, ask yourself, ask God, what is mine to do? And what is others' responsibility? What is the true need? And what is really a distraction? So in closing, friends, I'd like to offer you this prayer in this season of heightened activity and anxiety. So this is a prayer for over-functioning. I'm going to invite you to say it with me in just a moment, but I think it's funny to ask people to pray something they haven't read yet. So you can decide if you want to opt in or out as we, as we close with this, this together. Would you pray with me? God, grant me the humility to know what is mine to do and what is not, the grace to do what is mine and release what is not, and the wisdom to differentiate between the two. And everybody said, amen. amen.